the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello to all our listeners and welcome to our December 2020 podcast. This month we'll be talking about the new guideline for the management of hip fractures, which updates the previous version from 2011, as well as endorsing the International Fragility Fracture Network's consensus statement on the principles of anesthesia for all the patients with fragility hip fracture. They incorporate new evidence to provide more informed consensus recommendations. The authors go into more detail about controversial areas of patient management, particularly with reference to anemia, anticoagulation, valvular heart disease, and type of anaesthesia. We're delighted to be joined with one of the authors of the paper, Professor Ian Moppup, who's also an editor of the journal. And we're also joined by Kira O'Donnell, a consultant at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. Kira has a research interest in hip fractures, perioperative outcomes, and depth of anaesthesia. So, hi, Kira. Hi, Ian. Hi. Hi, Mike. Great to have you both with us. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a question for Ian as um, the author of the paper. It's now been nine, ten years or so since the last li- guideline, and obviously that would have taken itself a few years to write as well and go through the publication process. Um, so has much changed since its publication? And um, What were the main bits that you felt needed updating? Really interesting question, Mike. And things, uh, I think, that have changed, um, clearly there's something, things, for instance, uh, DOACs have come on the scene. They weren't. They, they just weren't around um, uh, quite a while ago, so that's it's something quite specific. I think the thinking around uh, mode of anaesthesia has changed um, a bit. Uh, you know, we might come on to talk about that later. And aside from that, there's also actually in the time since we last wrote them, uh, these guidelines have been used. Um, you know, I think they've been really quite. The previous version of guidelines have been quite well embedded into practice. People people look at them. Uh, one of the interesting things for me is I meet quite a lot of orthopedic orthopedic surgeons from uh, around the country, and uh, the orthopedic surgeons know about these guidelines. They really like the um, uh, this is not a reason to cancel a patient list. Um, you know, it's one of the things they like, and it helps support people. So I think perhaps the change people have got much better at thinking about hip fractures as a um, as a, uh, a population of people who need good care and doing it right. It's not just for the occasional anaesthetist. That inevitably things that do need updating. Um, I say DOAX, that's one thing. Um, thinking about mode of anaesthesia, thinking about how we manage blood transfusion. I think some of the, those are some of the main things. Kira, there are obviously quite a lot of wide variations in clinical practice, but not just that, also how we study hip fracture. Do you have any reasons as to why this might be? and how we can make that better. Yes, thanks, Mike. Um, There are quite a lot of um, variations that exist between institutions and surgical practices and speed, but not only that. It's really difficult to classify anaesthesia by mode, as Ian has alluded to, uh, whereby a very binary documented, this is a GA versus a regional, it's very difficult to actually classify unless you see what's done. You may have varying spinal uh, dosage, uh, varying depths of anaesthesia or sedation. And obviously this causes problems with comparing techniques and contributes to a lack of consensus really as to which is better. So we do need a better system to classify anaesthesia technique. However, I do feel as outlined by the new guidelines, that the principles of anaesthesia are incredibly helpful um, as it recognises that it's not the particular mode, but really what you're trying to achieve with your anaesthetic technique in terms of outcomes for the patient, So, such as being sympathetic to the patient's uh, physiology. Um, aside from that, really, you know, you can't focus only on physiological targets. 
um, really considering that in isolation, uh, you may have a high dose spinal with a phenylephrine infusion, which is not the same as having a low dose spinal with no infusion. Obviously, in terms of um, your blood pressure will will probably be the same for both, but there are very different implications for post-operative outcomes as well as management um, in the, the wider perioperative period. So yes, definitely variations in uh, anaesthetic practice. Um, in the same way that variation exists there, really there is, um, it's very difficult to compare studies with regards to the outcomes that they report, um, obviously, and the patients that are included in the studies. So there's really heterogeneity from the intervention right through to the patient study group, as well as the outcomes reported, um, making comparisons very difficult. Um, secondly, as the, the new guidelines mention, traditionally reported outcomes such as mortality, length of stay and return to residence, um, obviously are no longer adequate markers of um, surgical outcomes. And, and the, the guidelines do state that they're very temporarily disconnected to be attributable to you know, a single episode of anesthesia. Uh, the other thing is that those more traditionally reported outcomes are probably not sensitive enough really to pick up differences in anaesthesia type and generally mortality rates are low. Uh, we do, there is a, quite a widely reported statistic um, saying that 99.4% of ASA4 patients are alive at day six post-op. So really, I think morbidity outcomes like delirium, pneumonia, MI are more likely to be sensitive, uh, more prevalent in the perioperative period and better quality indicators that are modifiable by anaesthetic and surgical technique. Um, and we do know that morbidity is uh, linked with increased risk of, of death up to three years post-op. So I, I really think it probably future lies in morbidity outcome reporting and uh, considering obviously uh, better classification of our interventions as well. Ian, do you think that we're now beyond this mode of anaesthesia argument and that we need to start looking as curious as to the, small, the smaller things, the ways that anaesthesia can play a, a crucial role in the management of people with hip fracture in terms of morbidity? Oh, um... Will anaesthetists ever get beyond the debate about spinal versus general anaesthesia? Um, uh, no, of course we, we're never going to get beyond that. You know, we're anaesthetists. That's we're always going to argue about that. Um, uh, my personal view, and I think this is reflected in the in the in the recommend in the guidance, is that at the moment, notwithstanding there are there are clinical trials going on, there are randomised controlled trials of general versus spinal anaesthesia um, already going on. At the moment, we don't have hard evidence to say that one technique is better than the other. And I think it's one of the key things is understanding that it's about giving the right anaesthetic to the right to the right patient in the right way. Um, I was talking to one of my colleagues earlier, um, you know, and, and we were talking about the fact that you know, the, the principles you could say that we talk about for anaesthesia for, for people with hip fracture is do the right, do, do it, whatever you're doing, do it well. Uh, and we, I think we're trying to get that across in the guidance. I, I completely agree with Kira that the, um, uh, we need to be thinking about our role um, as, as perioperative doctors and how do we how do we hand these these patients over to the to the team who are going to get them out of bed and rehabilitating? Um, how can we do that in the most sensitive way for that patient? And how can we do that in a in a patient centred way, as opposed to an anaesthetic or at least centred way about thinking what's right what's right for this patient? Um, what does this patient want me to do? Um, uh, so. Um, 
so I think you know that's where that's where we're going. We should be looking at how do we make those those little changes at process level, which make a difference to whether someone um, uh, is at greater or lesser risk of delirium. Um, uh, you know, what can we do that's going to influence that? And uh, and I think you know that's where we're driving towards. It's getting getting releases thinking. Yeah, you know, we're part of the pathway. This isn't just about the the hour or hour and a half that they're in theatre with us. Um, and once they leave recovery, nothing to do with us. It's about thinking. Let's hand this patient over um, uh, to the ward team, to the, the experts on the ward, in as good a state as we can as we can be. I guess one one of those areas where we can you know reduce morbidity and things like delirium is is something that we can do very well during that period that short period of time where the patients are with us is uh, manage analgesia uh, and I guess one of the shocks for me that came out of the paper was this persistent cystic that only around sixty percent of patients receiving general anesthesia and around forty percent of patients who receive the spinal also got a nerve block as part of their perioperative um, technique uh, and that obviously doesn't include patients who had a nerve block in, in the ED etc. Um, and a question for both of you really whether or not you think that there's been any progress with that. Um, um, th- there's a nice table in the guideline that shows it's actually remained quite static uh, over a number of years. Um, in view of our own practice, actually, in the Royal, I was quite surprised looking at the NHFD um, figures. And um, obviously, I-, I feel that we're quite a regional-based trauma unit and probably would have a nerve block rate of over 90% for hip fractures. Um, I don't know, perhaps, is it difficult to capture all of the data on NHFD as it relies on correct input, you know, in local hospital systems. But if it is corrected, it, it is quite surprising um, as the, really the big driver for nerve blockade is the reduction of opioid consumption for these patients. And obviously, all of the evidence really points towards this, whereby in turn, you get a reduction in delirium and there's moderate grade evidence in reduction for pneumonia, as well as obviously reduced pain scores and reduce first time to mobilisation. So blocks are are really key in the management of these patients. Um, I sort of feel like it brings things back to standardisation of practice, which is mentioned in in the guidelines, uh, whereby you need to have local standard operating procedures with regards to analgesic pathways. Um, And this is something that we have done with our hip fractures uh, before the pathway was in place. There were any number of different um, opioid medications being prescribed from A&E to the ward. Um, Probably rarely consideration of a block uh, done in A&E and then possibly not repeated again in theatre. So now we have a standardised approach whereby blocks are done in A&E and then repeated again when the patient comes to theatre. And this is part of um, an all-encompassing pathway where you can Consider simple analgesia, um, the, the, the most appropriate short-acting opioids, and then a review of those uh, with regards to the patient's pain scores and um, a discontinuation at 48 hours, really. Um, and all of this has been been integral in in um, making it a success um, within our department, um, or promoting the increase um, of uh, nerve blocks. It has very much been led by a multidisciplinary team um, with anaesthesia, ED consultant involvement, orthogeries, um, as well as um, ward nurses and uh, the orthopaedic surgeons themselves. So 
whether the the national figures are related to a training issue or whether there is a fear maybe of uh, repeating a block after it's initially been done in A&E, I don't know if that's contributing. Um, perhaps the, the timing aspect has been clarified, you know, with the new guidelines um, now that they state that it's, it's fine to repeat a block within six hours. Hopefully this will um, alleviate fear if it's regarding local anaesthetic toxicity or... Um, you know, will certainly highlight the the need for the block and the benefits of it really in re- reducing opioid consumption. How do you feel about that, Ian? So, well, to so go back to your original question, um, uh, in terms of the number of blocks that are being done, I suspect there is there is probably a little bit of a data capture issue in terms of, um, and it's easy to blame someone else for that. If the thesis isn't writing, writing clearly in a place that an audit clerk can find the data, then, you know, we, we need to own up to that. Um, I think the standardisation piece is there um, and around nudging people such that um, I, I suspect we've, all three of us have probably been there that when if the ODP says to you, are you doing a block, then the block is going to be happening, whereas because they're used, because, you know, oh, you know, that's what we normally do, um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll sort of nudge ourselves into doing the right thing. Um, and that... It's really interesting hearing what you were saying, Chiara, about the, the standardisation. I think that's really important because it allows them, it allows the ward teams in particular to see what good analgesia looks like and what it looks like when it hasn't worked. Because um, we all know that you know, not every block works. A femoral nerve block does not block the whole nerve supply to the hip. Um, but having the wards um, knowing that this is what it should look like, this is what it looks like if we give our standard regime and therefore it's not working. Um, so, and and that's, that's partly where standardisation comes in. We understand what it's like when it's when it's not right. Um, mm-hmm. And the uh, it's interesting, again, just from conversations with Elisa's around the country, um, I'll be honest, I find it surprising um, that people say, well, I don't put a nerve block in because they're having a spinal because what's the point? Um or because they're having a GA or whatever, and I think so. I think you know there are people um, for whatever reason who feel uncomfortable putting blocks in. They never put blocks in. They might not agree with the evidence. But I so say I'm hoping these guidelines will will help with things like the National Hip Fracture Database and you know and the and the, and the, the Scottish Hip Fracture Audit and the Irish Hip Fracture Audits. Um, that this will just nudge people to doing what we think is the right thing, and it's the right and the right mm-hmm. thing for patients. Given we've already talked about the mode of anaesthesia, um, would it be unfair for me to ask what your preferred <laughs> anaesthetic technique would be for a patient with hip fracture? Do you want to go first, Ian? Or... <laughs> okay, so I'm going I'm to put my money down here and say that um, <laughs> uh, I actually do, I actually record what I do, and I, I give more GAs than I give spinals, but, and I'm, I'm going to but I'll be very really honest here. Um, part of that is I genuinely, or try to, give patients the choice. In that I'm, I'm really, I'm not convinced that there's a difference between the GA and the spinal. So I will, I, I think, I probably don't, but I try to give people a balanced view of saying, this is the advantages and disadvantages of general anaesthetic. This is the advantages and disadvantages of spinal anaesthetic. What would you prefer? And some patients are adamant that they want to, they've had a they've had a spinal before and they want to stay awake or whatever, and that's fine. Some patients are adamant that really they don't want to be they don't want to be um, uh, awake, um, and uh, so they'll get either. The one thing which I am pretty rigorous about is that I don't provide sedation to patients having a spinal anaesthetic. Um, they're going to get either 
in, in, my, in my terms, they either get a proper general anaesthetic or they get a spinal anaesthetic. And I think as most people who do hip fractures regularly uh, have found out that the vast majority of people, not all, but the vast majority um, who have an, an adequate spinal anaesthetic uh, will just doze off. Um, or they'll be in particular taking their pain away, we're taking their, their sensation, um, uh, they're wrapped up nicely in a, in a, in a warm, uh, forced air warmer, and they just fall asleep. They don't need sedation. So that's my view. Um, uh, and I'll put my money down on my dose. It's 1.8 mils or 0.5% heavy bupropion. That's what I use, um, and I'll stand by that. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> Kira? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Ian that um, I don't think there's enough evidence to say that one is better than the other. And I actually spent quite a bit of time doing a review looking into that very topic. Um, I do know, obviously, that there have been issues with comparing the literature. So maybe we're not measuring the right things in order to detect a difference. Um, and the fact that our techniques are so heterogeneous, we haven't been able to establish if there is one. Despite that, I feel that I would lean quite heavily towards spinal anaesthesia, and um, as do the majority of anaesthetists in our unit. Uh, we do about 1,000 hips a year and have successful outcomes with the majority having spinal. Um, so probably um, there is an element of sort of a cultural um, aspect to that, uh, but also personally, it is it is my preference. Um, even though I don't think um, having a targeted um, general anaesthesia where you're using the appropriate depth uh, for the age of the patient and you're monitoring their physiology closely, I, I don't feel that um, a GA is actually any less of an anaesthetic as long as it's just given correctly. Um, in terms of my my dose for a spinal, I'd probably go for 1.5 mils of heavy. I uh, usually use 20 to 30 mils of 0.5% chirotene as, um, for a femoral and lateral cutaneous nerve block and a or a supraingual fascia iliaca block, uh, depending. Um, I, I just kind of flip between the two. Um, as long as, obviously, I don't max out on the, on the dose for the patient. Obviously, I'd go a bit lower if it's a, somebody who's quite slight. <laughs> I usually go bad side down with heavy and I agree with Ian, minimal sedation. Often uh, they, they will sleep with a, with a good spinal and it's just really the loss of pain and that's, you know, loss of sympathetic response. They really do tend to, to need very minimal sedation. Um, but if I, I do tend to use TCI propofol to turn the patient and usually would target less than 0.5 mics per mil TCI. I would have very low threshold for putting in an art line. Um, I think tight BP control is really important. Um, and obviously very low threshold in patients who are DNA CPR for hemiarthroplasties with regards to obviously tight blood pressure control before cementing. Um, uh, I do feel that I probably am lucky to work with very speedy surgeons and I think it can be quite surgeon dependent and sometimes people modify technique based on the length of the procedure um, rather than what they would maybe prefer to give. Um, so I, I do think um, it, it's very much should be a consultant led um, service as Ian has said before with a consultant orthopaedic surgeon or, or a very experienced reg performing the surgery um, as well as a very experienced anaesthetist. Going back to the guideline a little bit, this, there's been guidelines that have had so much success in this area, and I guess there's lots of analogies between that and airway management because uh, researching this patient cohort is obviously very 
difficult in terms of you know doing randomized control trials and high, generating high quality evidence. What do you think some of the barriers are to that? Um, I think I'd be a bit more optimistic actually, Mike. Um, you know, there are some trials going on. So outside of this country, um, uh, in Europe and the States, there's big um, randomized control trials of general anesthesia and um, versus spinal anesthesia. Um, the uh, the Oxford group have been very successful, to be fair, mainly in orthopedic um, research. Um, yeah, essentially, uh, you know, which bit of metal to put in. Uh, um, with uh, a, a series of, of good, high, really high-quality, large randomised controlled trials. So I think it is possible actually to do that. I think perhaps we've been in the anaesthesia world have been a, a bit frightened or a bit behind, or just concentrating too much on, you know, what dose of of a drug should we give, rather than thinking a bit bigger picture. Mm. Um, so that, you know, there are, there's research. Um, uh, you know, people are interested in um, you know uh, transfusion management, in hemoglobin management, in different uh, approaches to pain management. Um, so I think I think research is possible, and actually you know, uh, and, I, and I think at least it's around the country actually, if they're asked, will actually be a really good res good resource to, to facilitate that research. But you know, inevitably. Uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to play my own trumpet here at all. I think it's there's a but there is a place for um, getting that sort of research going. I mean, but importantly, it's about asking the right questions. And I think mm -hmm. we need to get away from um, purely did the blood pressure, did the chart look beautiful? Um, into uh, in going back to what we talked about earlier, the you know what matters to the patient. Are we making a difference to whether they get delirium? That is so distressing for the patient, for their family, for other patients on the ward. Um, you know, are we making a difference to something that really matters, not a bit of anaesthetic navel gazing? Um, so I think research is possible, and lots of people around the country have shown that. So I'm going to be a bit more optimistic. I'm going to disagree with you, probably for the first and last time. <laughs> And Kira, you're obviously um, uh, involved with a lot of um, research over there in Belfast. Definitely feel the same as Ian. There is lots of scope for improving outcomes for these patients. And we are definitely moving away from the mode of anaesthesia debate and more into the things that really matter for or translate into better outcomes for the patients. So I, I sort of feel that um, there are a few exciting potential projects um, to come, uh, possibly on tranexamic acid administration, um, not just before skin incision, but uh, at the time of admission, really, to reduce transfusion rates for these patients which can be up to about 40% or more actually in our unit in a recent audit um, other things possibly that could be improved are perioperative anemia treatment with iron infusions um, also uh, looking at depth of anaesthesia or um, depth of sedation and the link with delirium um, is something that um, interests me as well. So I do think there are lots of different things we can look at. And obviously with reporting more standardised outcomes, I feel that we could probably make better comparisons um, within that hip fracture population. Um, another thing I sort of alluded to earlier is that sometimes the more frail populations were admitted from previous studies and I think looking at the, the very frail uh, cohort that possibly have cognitive impairments that possibly wouldn't have been included in past studies should definitely be included in the future um, so definitely lots of exciting projects that we could be getting underway with and I think um, very much on a, on a, a multi-centre scale as well 
And I guess one thing, one area we can make things better for patients is by getting them to the operating theatre quicker. And that's a, a focus of the guideline, this um, helping to facilitate this 36-hour limit from fracture to surgery. Um, how do you think the anaesthetist can um, help uh, in that process? I, actually, I, actually, I think it's quite a lot we can do um, because the... And, uh, you know, in, in proper exam style, let's think um, sort of pre, pre-op... Um, uh, intra-op and post-op. Um, pre-op, um, uh, the I think having an ESIS as part of the of the trauma meetings, the screens meetings, whatever they're called, the you know the, the planning meetings. Um, uh, I think there's, there's benefit there because um, identifying problems which or things which might be a problem early, so they get sorted. I think that's really important. Um, the uh, and and part of that is actually also stopping investigations um, because um, you know if if the if the ward staff for whatever reason think oh Doctor X always wants investigation Y which is going to take some time we have the ability to say actually no I don't need that investigation um, uh, we can carry on you know um, you know when it comes to to things like like DOAC, being consistent. And saying no, no, we're agreed. This is the time I want to go to theatre. We don't need to wait. We don't need to do any more tests. Um, uh, let's just let's just get on. And so I think there's that pre-op bit. I think there is an issue. Some for some there is variation in the amount of time that people spend in an anaesthetic room. And as least we have to own that. Um, we like to have a little wind about how long the surgeons take. But actually, you know, when they're when they're peering through the door, if someone has been taking an hour to try and get a spine in. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, that's not helping. That's not helping the last patient on the list get their operation. Um, and then, it's similarly, there's an issue for the post-op bit, which is that, you know, it's the knock-on effect. Um, if our patients are hypotensive in recovery, then, uh, you know, and, and the recovery room gets blocked because our patient is, is stuck there because they've had a whopping dose of their spinal which hasn't worn off. Um, you know, we're having impact on theatre flow. Um, so there's all those bits. And then, um, I guess the last bit I'd say is around the sort of the whole process. Um, so it's coming back to the standardization thing and this understanding about our outcomes and how, how things are working. Um, you know, for instance, if a unit is having problems with patients with DOAX, well, let's find out when they've got a problem with patients being delayed because they're DOAX. And the issue should be there going, well, what's our part in that problem? Um, you know, are we... Are we facilitating them getting to the theatre or are we making it difficult? Are we being a bit random about whether someone has an echo or not, um, which is just going to cause delay? So I think I think we've actually got there's loads that we can do. Um, some of it is around process, some of it is actually just around our own practice and not and not faffing in the anaesthetic room, which we are we are all perfectly capable of doing, me included. Um, Kira, um, what do you think the best pragmatic approaches to anaesthetising patients with hip fracture taking a go dark because uh, there was a recent editorial from um, uh, Stu White who said that we perhaps overstated the risk of um, a vertebral canal hematoma in these patients. I feel that the new guidelines are actually excellent um, with regards to informing people um, you know about DOAX and their timing um, I do think the the two half-lifes and then obviously four in the presence of renal failure is quite a pragmatic approach uh, to take um, you know obviously it takes into consideration safety with regards to blood loss if they proceed to theatre uh, for surgery but also the risk of a vertebral canal hematoma if neuroaxial blockade is considered um, while avoiding prolonged delays um, which may have happened uh, 
you know, without that guidance. Um, I do feel in terms of whether we're overstating the risk of a vertebral canal hematoma, I know that NAP3 didn't report any with spinals. Um, However, if a patient did develop um, one, it would be catastrophic and obviously the outcomes are really poor. So I, I don't think we've overestimated the risk. I think it's really important to, to take into consideration the risk and that the guidelines really have done so with um, their consideration of DOACs, um, you know, in terms of the risk benefit um, and timing to theatre. One thing that I don't agree with um, in the guidelines is the checking of thrombin time or level of anti-TNA, as I do think these blood samples take long time to process, up to four hours. And as far as I know in the literature, there's no link between those levels and blood loss. So I think definitely in terms of the timing and the half-life, it's it's, it's probably a more pragmatic approach than sending blood samples. Um and it was certainly it's not something that we've adopted within our department. So I, I think the the new national guidelines are excellent in terms of informing local practice. And I think will be really welcomed by departments everywhere because there always has been confusion and potential for delay with regards to WAC use. Ian, do you think the message is getting through? Um, I think so. The... Clearly, the aim uh, of the guidance when it came to DOACs um, was to be to provide pr- a pragmatic starting point for a consistent approach. And um, one thing I've been really keen at this point to say is that um, uh, the uh, an awful awful lot of the work that was done there was done by Amy Mayer, one of my, our colleagues, um, uh, consultant uh, in Calderdale, and you know, she should take the credit for for developing that and doing a lot of this, a lot of the sort of the, the, the heavy lifting in terms of, of, of developing that that guidance and making it pragmatic. I think I think it's getting through. It's interesting. I you know kept an eye on, on Twitter just in a couple of days since it's come out, and, and people people seem to be liking the fact that something's written down around the DOACs. In the end, you know, there are no randomised controlled trials. I don't think there will be any randomised controlled trials um, of uh, of delaying versus not delaying. So in the end, it, it is a sort of a theoretical basis of what we're doing. Um, the uh, and it's a balance of risks. Um, we uh, we know that operating earlier is generally associated with better outcomes. Um, uh, and equally, we know that um, you know DOACs they are anti you know, they are 10 A inhibitors, that's what they're supposed to do. So patients may um, be more prone to bleeding. So again, the evidence isn't that strong in hip fractures that it makes a difference, but that, you know, there isn't much evidence there at all. So we're hopeful that you know, a pragmatic approach um, uh, makes sense um, and it will help people. And help people have those conversations. It doesn't mean that there may be an individual who, for whatever reason, it's right to do a spinal earlier on, um, or it's right to it's it's right to, to delay things for, for another reason. But it's you know, like with a lot of guidelines, it's about saying what's the right thing for 80, 90 percent of our patients and getting it right for them. Um, so I'm hoping hopefully it'll help. Um, the uh, yeah, but we'll you know we'll, we'll have to see. Doacs are going to be the thing. Warfarin appears to be a less commonly used drug now, and DOACs more commonly used. So we're going to have to get comfortable with it. And we're mindful of the fact that when clopidogrel came in, everyone worried about everyone worried about clopidogrel and how, what are we going to do. And now, by and large, again, we're trying to be pragmatic about it in the guidance. It's viewed as well. And 
Um, and let's get it the same with, with GOAX, that we're just comfortable. This is this is the nature of the population that we're looking after. They're going to come in on GOAX. Um, one thing I would sort of emphasise about the recommendations um, is I hope it's actually written down. It's really, really important to find out when the patient actually last took it, because that yeah. is the time. It's not the time of admission. Um, uh, inevitably, there will be one patient every year who is reaching for their DOAC as they fall over, but the vast majority of patients don't take their DOAC at the same time as their hip fracture. So the, those timings are actually usually put back by sort of 8, 12 hours anyway. Um, so hopefully it's helpful. Really agree with you there, Ian, that the guidelines have been very well received on Twitter uh, from the response that we've had. I guess you'll be thinking about updating them in, uh, in a few years' time, is that right? How long have I got till I retire? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> um, you can get here to help me with the next, uh, with the next um, development. So, so my, my honest answer is, I, I, I sort of knew the question was coming up, and the I don't know when they'll be, when they'll be updated. What I'm really hopeful is that they'll be updated next time around. They'll be updated on the basis of uh, some good trial evidence. They'll actually, we will have had the, some trials saying, you know, what, in the early um, early phase of injury, this is what to do about transfusion. This is what we think. This is what we think the role is for intravenous iron. This is what we think um, the role is for transamic acid giving an ED or often across the wound in a powder, whatever else it might be, and actually. And this technique is associated with getting people out better, or that we actually differentiate the hip fracture population a bit better. 5% of patients with a hip fracture are really quite well. You know, they're the golf playing, tennis playing, falling over, doing something exciting group. And yet we lump them with the people who come from nursing homes. And actually, maybe we'll have actually got some evidence to say, look, this group, you can treat in this way, and that's different to this group, not it's one homogenous, um, they're all moderately at risk. Well, we're better at risk stratifying. So, yeah, so maybe five, six years' time, we'll have something which, where we, we actually, actually say, look, here's some randomised controlled trials. This is, this is no longer just um, opinions. This is, uh, we've got some evidence behind this. I think we've had a really nice discussion there about the guidelines, which have been uh, received very well on Twitter. Uh, we look forward to um, some of our readers' uh, letters. I'm sure we'll get some letters in the journal about guidelines uh, and also hearing about how they've been implemented up and down uh, across the country and around the world. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us, um, Kieran and Ian. Um, it's been a really nice discussion. Uh, I think we've... Um, uh, really touched on some of the important new bits of the guidelines, but also reinforcing some of those fundamental such as uh, doing the right thing for the patient in front of you and moving away from some of the old arguments that uh, perhaps we've become fixated on in the past. Uh, so thank you very much, Kara. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you, Mike. Bye. The Anesthesia Podcast.